bless you. We love you. We trust you, Jesus, now and forever. You guys may take your seats. If you haven't already, greet somebody next to you. Let them know you love them. How's everybody doing this morning? It's so good to be here with God's people. Amen? There's no place I would rather be than in God's presence with God's people. I am not Pastor Joe. I am Pastor Jared, one of the staff here at Metro Praise International. Many of you do know me as I teach the 201 class and known some of you many, many, many years. Uh, but if you don't know me, uh, this is your introduction. And I will be picking up right where Pastor Joe left off last week. So if you can turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. The title of today's message was, or is, as in the days of Noah, as in the days of Noah. So let's have our Bibles open. You can pull that up on the screen. Thank you, Andrew. And we will start in verse 36. Just to recap where we were last week, up until this point, Jesus has been telling his disciples what would be the signs of the end and of his return. Jesus wants us to be in the know about the end times and about his return. Do you believe that? That's why he takes this whole chapter to tell us what we should be looking out for. There are books like Revelation in the Bible, chapter after chapter, telling us what it will be like leading up to his return. And so Jesus wants to be, uh, us to be in the know. He wants us to be prepared for his return. And we're going to continue on that thought, starting in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So I'm going to go through, the past, uh, through this entire passage, but we're going to stop at each verse and each section to unpack some of the relevant points. The first thing we're going to run into is a Christological controversy. And what I mean is, if you are an informed student of the Word, if you know even basic Christian theology, this might present a problem for you. Because there is something, apparently, that Jesus does not know. Do you see that? About that day or hour, not even the angels know, nor, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, Christian theology is this. Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God, and He is fully man. Now, in order for God to be God, He must be omniscient. We've got a lot of $500 words this morning. Christological, omniscient. Just brace yourselves. There's a few more I have for you. He must be omniscient. What does that mean? All-knowing. But there's something that Jesus does not know. How can he be God? And so the cultist, like the Jehovah Witness or the Muslim, will say, Aha, aha, Jesus cannot be God, as you claim, because there is something that he does not know. Well, as an informed student of the Word and of Christian theology, let me help you uh, understand some of the nuances of Jesus being God. As I had said a moment ago, Jesus is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. 
let's talk about him being man and what that entails. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. The first term I want to give you here is incarnation. And if you are of the gente, encarnacion. How many like carne asada on your taco? And you know what? The word incarnation comes from the Latin word for in the flesh. So the, the meat, in the flesh. And so the doctrine of the incarnation is how God came in the flesh. Everybody there, John chapter 1, verse 1? It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we've heard this passage taught many times, but what it's basically teaching is that Jesus is God. He is the Word here in the passage. That's who He is. The Word was God. And so he is, everything that God is, Jesus is. All powerful, right? Eternal. All of these divine qualities that only God possesses are true of Jesus. You get me? And yet the word was with God. Who was he with? He was with God, the Father. And that will be made clear as well. The word therefore with is actually pros, which means facing. He is face to face with the Father. And so it's teaching us two things, that Jesus is God, but he is distinct from the Father. And so this is where we begin to understand the Trinity, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're all God, they're all co-equal, co-eternal, and yet they are not the same as one another. For example, did the Father die on the cross for your sins? No. The Father sent the Son to die on the cross for your sins. Were you baptized in the Son? You were, no, you were baptized in the Holy Spirit, right? And so you see that there are distinct persons that share the one divine being. Now, if you skip down to verse 14, you can see how God the Son came in the flesh. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word, who was said to be from the very beginning, who was God and was with God, now became flesh. He came in the flesh. He incarnated, right? And He became like us in every way. And so God became a man. He added a human nature. Let's tease this out just a little further. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. I'm going to give you another big word. It is kenosis. Everyone say kenosis. And kenosis is a Greek word for self-emptying or self-humbling. And so when God became a man, he did not become any less God. Do you understand that? Jesus was, is, and always will be fully God. But when he became a man, he set aside divine power and privilege. He humbled himself as a man. So Philippians 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 5 tells it like this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Let's stop right there. He is in very nature God, yet he takes on the nature of a man. So Jesus has in his person a human nature and a divine nature, both at the same time. And in order for him to take on a human nature, it is a humbling endeavor. When Jesus walks the earth, he has to use the bathroom just like you and me. He puts his pants on or his robe, whatever, one leg at a time, just like you and I have to do. He is bound by space and time limitations. He is even bound in knowledge. Luke 2.52 says of the boy Jesus, he grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man. Does God have to grow in wisdom? Does God need to eat? Does God need to do any of these things? No, obviously not, but human beings do. It even says as a man, he died, he died the death of the cross. Can God die? No, but a man can die, and as man, God died. So he humbles himself, and this involves a limiting of knowledge. As I had mentioned, he had to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So there was a point when the little baby Jesus was not yet potty trained, right? And so he has to grow in all of these things. And obviously here, when we're in Matthew 24, Jesus is, you know, over age 30 at this point, and he has been baptized, and he has commenced his mission to preach, to teach, to heal, and ultimately to go to the cross. It is clear that he knows who he is, where he came from, where he's going, and yet he is limited in this knowledge. And I believe God was very purposeful in that. So I gave you a few big words. Here's one more. Economic subordinationism. You say that five times fast. Economic subordinationism. I'll give you a few verses. You don't have to turn there. But in John 5.19, John 5.19, Jesus says that he can only do that which he sees the Father do. He can only do that which he sees the Father do. And then in John 14, 28, he says that after the resurrection, he will return to the Father, for he says, the Father is greater than I. And passages like that, once again, are used by Muslims, Jehovah Witnesses, and others to say, aha, Jesus cannot be God. He is not equal to God because he even says the Father is greater than I. This is a demonstration of Jesus' self-humbling as a man, as the God-man, as the perfect man. Single ladies, Jesus is the perfect man. He is the Ryan Gosling of saviors, right? He, amen, he'll save you and he'll smolder while doing it. I love you. No. So he is the perfect man. He is the example for all of us to follow. So is he an atheist? No. He is somebody who lives in obedience and submission and dependence on God. Does that make sense? As a man and as the example for all of us to follow, he lives in obedience and submission and dependence on God. God the Son served God the Father by the power of God the Spirit. And isn't that how you and I are to live with our lives? 
to serve and do the will of the Father. Jesus even says as much as in John 8, 29, he speaks of the Father sending him, and he says, I always do what pleases him. So in the economy of the Trinity, you do see the Son subordinate to the Father. That is, come under the Father's authority and obey the Father in that way. Does that make him any less God? No, it doesn't. But it speaks to his role and his function. And by the way, that is reciprocated. So the Son serves the Father and submits to the Father and obeys to the Father, even going to the cross. But in turn, the Father makes the Son heir of all things and makes him the object of the, of the worship of the whole universe. Isn't that wonderful? Now, that's just the introduction, folks. And I threw out some $500 words. I don't want you to think that this is just dry, dusty theology. Now we're going to get to the good stuff. I want us to joyfully worship the God who humbled himself to save us. Amen? I want us to be in awe of the economy of the Trinity, of how the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are uh, three but one. They have the same divine essence. They are equal, and yet they serve one another in different roles for our good, for our salvation, for our joy, for our eternal life. They work in different ways. Isn't that wonderful? But what I think Jesus wanted his disciples to know and what he wants you to know is that you can't know the day or the hour, so stop trying. Stop trying. He has laid out many signs for us to be aware of. He has talked about his return at length, but he stopped short of telling us the time and the hour. And I think this limiting of revelation, this limiting of the Father to the Son, saying, Son, we're not going to talk about this, basically. We're not going to talk about this. And why? Because think about any deadline you've ever had. Uh, on a school project, at work. If you have a month to complete a project, it will take you about a month to complete it. Whether you do it kind of gradually, like, oh, I'm going to get a start on it. You know, you open up your document on your computer. Oh, I'm going to get a start on it. You write like two words. Yeah, and then you come back next week. And then you ultimately end up cramming towards the end of it, don't you? Well, if that, if that month-long deadline was one week, how long would it take you to complete it? About a week, right? And so there's a deadline, and God doesn't want you to know the deadline. Why doesn't he want you to know the deadline? Because he always wants you to be ready for his return. He doesn't want you to kind of rest on your laurels and say, eh, God's not coming back for a, another 150 years, so I could just kind of do me, you know, and we, you know we, got, we got all the time in the world to figure this out, you know, as the church, as people, right? We have all the time in the world to get right with God, to go out and fulfill the Great Commission, so on and so forth. And we could just kind of be lazy until that very end and then try to get things right, you know? And it's like, hey, Jesus is coming back. Everybody look busy now. But God doesn't want us. God always wants us ready. God wants us always to be aware of what's going on in the world. God always wants us to be faithfully serving him day after day after day. Now, I will get into more of the, the, the people that try to tell you what the day or the hour is. Many cult groups have tried to do this. I mentioned Jehovah Witnesses. 
A lot of their early uh, following was gained by making false end-time prophecies, telling you the day and the, and the time that, that Jesus would come. And then he didn't, but he, they, they got people into such a frenzy, and they got people thinking, well, this, this group, the Watchtower, man, they really hear from God. And there were also even otherwise fine Christians, otherwise sock, doctrinally sound Christians who do the very same thing, and they make us look very, very silly. But more on that... In a moment, let's read on in uh, Matthew 24, verse 37. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus gives us an example from history of what it will be like at his return. He says in the days of Noah, people were completely oblivious to the fact of the flood. They were not expecting a flood. They didn't believe Noah. And, and if you didn't know this, Noah was building that ark for 100 years. They had 100 years to figure it out. Why is this guy building an ark? Why is this guy telling us, uh, you know, turn or burn, or turn around or drown, you know? Why is, what, what, what is going on here? They did not heed the signs. They did not heed the prophetic warnings. They were just completely oblivious, trapped, uh, uh, wrapped up in their everyday lives. And I think that's very much like our world today. Like you can hear in, in communist China right now that Xi Jinping the dictator of that country is taking out every vestige of the Ten Commandments and replacing them with his quotes. This man is setting himself up as an antichrist. Are you listening? Putting himself and his authority and his name in the place of God in that nation. You can read about that and just kind of skim the headline and then take the what kind of cat are you test on social media, right? Or whatever it is. Um, you know, just kind of go about your day and just kind of forget what you just read. You can see the signs being fulfilled. And let me recap some of those signs that are being fulfilled in the world that we learned last week. Number one, false Christ. You can hear a false Christ who gained massive followings in the millions and not really think much of it. So after church, you got to beat the Baptist to the buffet line, and that's really your main concern, what you're doing this week, you know, what you're, you know, maybe going on vacation, you know, paying your bills, whatever. You're just wrapped up in your everyday life. Wars and rumors of wars. You can hear about genocides that are taking place uh, around the world to this very day, at this very hour, and really not think much of it. You know, out of sight, out of mind. Famines earthquakes, and we've noted how all of these things have significantly increased even in the past century or so. Christian persecution. As a Christian, when you hear that Christians, your brothers and sisters are the most persecuted and reviled group around the world, being slaughtered and tortured in horrific ways around the world, and it doesn't phase you. You may be like this oblivious generation in the days of Noah. That's a sign for you. Turning away when you see apostasy, when you see 
celebrity Christians apostatize or just whole denominations have apostatized, turned away from God, turned away from the, uh, the foundations of their faith, that should scare you. That should alarm you. And then the gospel being preached to all nations. Now, this is a positive sign. You know, in the past 100, 200 years, that more people have been reached with the gospel than the other 1,900 years combined since Jesus? Did you know that? That there have been explosions in world missions um, that have been documented. A lot of it has to do with the Pentecostal movement that began in the early 20th century, they saw themselves as receiving the, the power of the Holy Spirit for the last days. So they went out with renewed zeal to go and, and, and reach people all over the world. So this is being done. And Jesus said, all that must happen. And then the end will come. These things should be signs to us. We should look at the world around us and be woke because Jesus said these things would happen and that they would be indicative of something much greater and grand in the, in the scheme of God. Amen? And so, moving on, let's read verse 40. Jesus gives us examples of what it's going to be like when he returns. How will it be at the coming of the Son of Man? Verse 40. Two men will be on the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. The one will be taken, the other will be left. How many have heard of the rapture? Okay. For a lot of people, like this is their rapture verse. One will be taken, whoop, one will be left behind, like the movie with Nick Cage, right? One will be taken, they're going to go up to the sky with Jesus, they're just going to disappear, where'd they go, where'd they go, and then the other will be left behind. Now, this may or may not mean that. It could, because verse 31 says, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So it could be rapture because the ones being taken, it's the elect. They're being gathered, right, to Jesus. So it could be that. Or it could be that those who are taken are actually taken away in judgment, as in swept away by the flood. But here's what I think is really important. Whether, whether they're taken or they're left, whether it's, you know, whether you want to be one or the other, the point is, there, look, there's going to be people working together, two men in the field, you and your guy that you work with, and he's not a Christian, right? One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding in a handmill. In those days, women, you know, it might have been a mother and daughter, it might have been two sisters working together, one will be taken, the other left, so a lot of the people you know, anybody here going to school right now? A lot of your classmates, some will be taken, some will be left. Amen? And what's the, what's the, what's the uh, dividing line there? Do you know Jesus or do you not know Jesus? Right? Are you right with God or are you not right with God? That is really what we need to be prepared for. If we can't, you know, fully, you know, get to the bottom of this, is there's still debate about who's taken, who's left, and what that means. What's important to know is that you need to get right with Jesus. Amen? Is, and so you need to know the Lord. Now, reading on in uh, verse 42 through 44, he gives us, you could kind of think of these as parables, okay? Parables which are these short stories that Jesus uses. He uses everyday illustrations to make a point. He does this many times in Matthew's gospel. And here, here's one. Verse 42, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. 
But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not let his house be broken into. So you must also be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. That makes enough sense, right? Jesus comes like a thief in the night. Thieves do not tell you when they are coming, because then you would be prepared and you would stop them, right? If you could. You would prevent their coming. Similarly, Jesus will come at a time when you do not expect him, and so the principle is you must always be ready. He could come at any time, and he's not going to tell you. Then verse uh, 45, here's the other parable. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for the servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is a parable in a sense. Jesus gives other parables about masters and servants, like we know the parable of the talents. You guys know that one? That's actually going to be next week, Matthew 25, where there's going to be a man. He's going to go away for a long time, but he's going to entrust to his servants certain amounts of money. We call them talents, and then he's going to come back, and at, when he returns, there's one word for this, accountability. Amen? God will hold that servant accountable for what they did with his stuff. So that's the principle there, but it's also the principle here in this parable, the servant is not given money necessarily, though there, there probably is, but it's the wealth of his house, it's, it's the servants, it's the people in his house, and, and so he's going to be responsible for that job there that he did. And how did he do? He did a very bad job. He got an F. He failed, and he got thrown out with the hypocrites, cut in pieces. And by the way, Jesus was being literal because in those days, one of the forms of punishment of capital punishment was to be cut in half. So he uses that imagery to say it will be severe. It will be severe if Jesus gave you something to do and you don't do it. And then you go and do the opposite. As it says, he, he becomes a drunkard, a drunkard and he begins to abuse the other servants. And this can happen as we wait for the return of Jesus. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. We know that the world is already like this because, as I have pointed out, many Christians have said, you know, Jesus is coming back. We've been saying this for 2,000 years, by the way. I mean, even, even the earliest Christians from the Bible times, they believed Jesus might be coming back in their lifetime. Paul believed it. If you go to the Reformation times like the 1500s, Martin Luther believed that the Pope was the Antichrist. You know, every generation, you kind of see these signs play out, and so it should keep you on your toes. That's why the church has always been anticipating it. But then the world looks at the church and they say, dude, what are, you guys, what are you guys over here doing? You're saying the sky is falling. It hasn't fallen yet. 
You know, you said it 100 years ago, it didn't happen. You said it 200 years ago, all these different times, all these different failed predictions, and then they begin to do what? They begin to scoff. This is what it says, 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. I want to stay in this passage. We're going to read some more uh, in verse 8. But just want to pause there and, and help you understand what will happen at the return of Jesus. Earlier in Matthew 24, it says he will be visible. His return will be visible from one end of the earth to the other. Everyone will see him like a flash of lightning across the sky. He will come on the clouds of glory. And one of the things he will do in this sequence, is he will renovate the earth with fire. And so he will destroy the earth in its present form. He will destroy the wicked, and then he will create a new heaven and new earth for his people to dwell upon. And so, again, he's, we're seeing the example of Noah here. Long time ago, there was a flood. People are saying to Noah, where's this flood you keep talking about? Why do you keep warning us? You're a kook. Same thing now. Why do you keep saying Jesus is coming back? You guys are nuts. And isn't it fascinating that the same people who, who tell us that we're crazy for thinking Jesus is going to come back, we need to get ready for the apocalypse. They're all worried about global warming in 10 years. And they're telling us, hey, you know, we need to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. We need to get a, all the governments together. We need to get rid of cows and, and cars and stuff. And they're, they're all doomsday prepping. They have their own version of the end times. And so I could say, Al Gore, when is the end going to come? I'm going to scoff at Al Gore. There's other folks. There is this book. It's called The Population Bomb. It was published in the 70s. This is a little lanyap here. A book called The Population Bomb. Have you ever heard the, the devil's lie that there's too many people, right? And what do we, how do we try to just, what do we use that to justify? Well, we need more abortion, more birth control, things like that. Well, it, you know, if we need less people, why don't we start with you, you know? Why don't we start with the person that's actually proposing that? But the, the, the thesis of the population bomb, you could look it up, published in the 70s was, prove it, was disproved again and again and again. He thought the world would be unlivable by 19, the 1990s. Right? And so they have their own things that we can scoff at. Because these things, they may, they may delay. Jesus is delaying and he's purposeful. Why? But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So you see why God would take so long, why he would take, who knows, it's been at least 2,000 years, right? Why he would take this long and not 200 years or 20 years, why he didn't just, you know, come back and do everything in, in the first coming and why there's got to be a second. It's because God wants heaven populated. 
Amen? With people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And that's why the gospel must be preached to all nations as a testimony. God wants heaven full of people made in His image from every nation under heaven. And so He wants that. And He wants to give us. And He wants to give you. If you are still lost in your sin, He wants to give you ample opportunities to repent, to make things right. Reading on. In verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Friends, there's going to come a day where everything we think is so important will not even exist. It will be a bygone memory. Think about it, like Wrigley Field, you know, downtown there, Wrigleyville. That's going to be completely gone. World Series completely gone. White House completely gone. The world and everything done in it laid bare. It's all going to go away at the coming of Jesus, and he's going to start over new. Reading on, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's a good question. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. How ought we to live our lives godly and holy? And I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but instead of looking for signs in the sky, blood moons, and trying to predict the day and the time and identify who the Antichrist is, this is what we need to be doing, living holy and godly lives and speeding the coming of Jesus by fulfilling the Great Commission. Every one of us should be doing two things, folks, loving God and loving people. You want to be ready for the return of Jesus? Live your life loving God and loving people. But again, don't want to get too ahead of, my, of myself. But that is something that we need to consider. Like if we know Jesus is coming back, how ought we to live our lives? How ought we to prepare? Think about it. Like if you knew, for example, that you would die next week, like you had a grim prognosis from the doctor, it's stage four, it's, you know, you're done. Your toast. If you knew you had this short amount of time to live, what would you do differently? Hopefully nothing. Amen? Hopefully nothing. Jim Elliott, he was a Wheaton College graduate, and he was a, a pilot, and he went to go and preach to the Aka Indians in Peru in the 1950s, and he was speared to death. And he's quoted in his journal saying, when the time comes to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. Now, I want to kind of pose it that way. We're talking about the return of Jesus, but think about your, your own death. Very similar question, because you know it's going to happen, but you don't know when. And, and what they both have in common, you're going to meet Jesus. Jesus comes back, you'll meet Jesus. You die, you'll meet Jesus. Will it be a good day or a bad day for you? How can we know? We shouldn't have to, you know, frantically run around trying to fix things if we found out our time is short. If I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing every day, that I can die with no regrets. Amen? I, if, if Jesus comes back tomorrow and I've been loving God, loving people, I've been the faithful and wise servant doing what he has given me to do, then when I meet him, I'll be ready. I'm not going to be cut to pieces and left with the hypocrites. You get me? 
On this particular Sunday, we reflect on the life of our sister, Diana. Unexpected, right? I know she put out a prayer request Monday. She was sick. People get sick all the time. You, you know, people who saw that were probably expecting her to recover. She was expecting to recover, I bet, right? She didn't think that, you know, Thursday night would, would be her, her last day on earth. And yet it came like that. But I'm convinced that Diana was as ready to meet Jesus as anybody ever was. Amen? She was as ready to meet Jesus as anybody ever was was and everyone who knows her can verify that she loved the lord she was a worshiper of god and she didn't do it just because oh jesus is coming back i better i better look pious she loved and adored and, and served her husband she loved and adored and taught her son in the ways of the lord everyone who was her friend was tremendously privileged by the godly encouragement that she provided. She loved God and loved people. She didn't have to change a thing. She didn't have to call up people she burned bridges with. You get me? She didn't, she didn't have regret like, oh, I had a call from God, but I didn't live it out. I was supposed to go to Bible college, but I didn't do it. You know what I'm saying? Or I was, I was, you know, I, I was supposed to, I was supposed to be a leader, but I, I, I quit and I backslid. She didn't have those kind of regrets. From the day she met Jesus about 10 years ago till now, she went full throttle. She never quit. She never let up. And that has to be the same for us. Again, I want to frame it like that because some of y'all don't believe me when I say Jesus is going to lay the earth bare and start a new one. But you know you're going to die. You ain't Superman. We think we have all the time in the world. You know, in past generations, people died all the time. Infant mortality, women dying in childbirth. These things happen all the time. The life expectancy rates were very low. People dying in their 40s and 50s. To be 60 years old was to be super old in, in, in past centuries up until the advent of modern medical breakthroughs, right? People understood that. There were plagues, folks, that took out millions of people in short amounts of time. People knew death. They understood death. They feared death, and they wanted to be prepared for that because they knew on the other side of the end of this life was, a, was, was meeting Jesus, but now we're so desensitized to it. We see, you could play a video game for an hour and see a hundred heads blown off. You could watch a movie and see like Hulk th throw a car at somebody. You're not thinking like, was there anybody in that car? You know, no, you're thinking, oh, it's cool. He threw a car. It's awesome, right? We're so desensitized to it. And then, we, and then when people actually die, it's usually just somewhere away. Let's take them to hospitals. Let's take them to a hospital. But again, folks were dying in living rooms back in the day. We think we have all the time in the world to get things right. We think we have all the time in the world to obey God. Now is all we have. Tomorrow is not promised. And today is a day of salvation. Let us, uh, let's get the, the, the band up here. Let's get the, the keys, Rachel. Thank you. How ought we to live our lives? The prospect of Jesus coming back should have us thinking, though, like, well, what should I do? Should I sell everything I have and live on a commune and preach on the streets all day? I once had that thought as an early Christian, like, dude, this is for real, you know? The end is near. Should I hold a sign downtown saying the end is near? 
Is that how I should live my life? James and Cindy, should you call off your wedding Saturday? Because he... <laughs> Beautiful couple. Juan, should you sell your business? Well, Jesus is coming back. Let's leave it all for the Antichrist. That's how people thought. And I wanted to get back to that because Christians have been silly. They've been silly with, this, with how they treat these prophecies, the prophecy mania. There was a book, 88 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And when it didn't happen, you get the revised and expanded version, 89 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1989. It's silly. A lot of this happened before my day, but there were churches, they used to have rapture practices where they jump, you know, you know, practicing when they go up in the sky to meet Jesus. Silliness. I saw a televangelist selling stockpiles of canned food. This doomsday pro uh, prophet wanted to make us doomsday preppers, right? Is that how we ought to live our lives? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Speaking of this couple uh, having their wedding, this is advice that is given to singles who are ready to mingle. I'm serious. Uh, look at verse 29. Here you go. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Again, this is actually the context of single people who are contemplating whether they should get married or not. The time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For the world in its present form is passing away. So do we abandon the world? Do we become Buddhist monks? Do we become doomsday preppers? No. We love God. We love people. We don't know when he's going to come. If we knew he was going to come tomorrow, we probably would, it would probably warrant us being more doomsday prepper-ish. But we don't know. And so he says, do what I gave you to do. Love your family. Do your job. Make disciples. Win souls. Live holy. Major on the majors, folks. And yet, we are to have this perspective. The time is short. And everything you have, your current situation, will, will all go away in the end. In the, in the resurrection, we will not be married. You and your children, you, you, you're in heaven, your relation, you, you, the heaven will not revolve around your relationship with your children. So if your children are your world, get over that. Amen? Love your children, but if your children are your world, get over that. If your spouse is your world, get over that. If your job is your world, get over that. If your education is your world, get over that. If your possessions are your world, get over that. Because all of those things, all of those situations will pass away. And as I said a moment ago, 100 years, 10,000 years, 1 million years, 1 billion years, forever and ever, we're going to be in a completely different living situation with Jesus. It's all going to be about Him. It's all going to be about His glory. Let's all stand up here and prepare our hearts I have one question today. Are you ready for the return of Jesus?
could happen. It could happen today. It could happen, single people, right before your honeymoon. Wouldn't you love that? He could come back, but he wants us to be ready. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And just hear the word of the Lord here. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to another without grumbling. Are you seeing actions that we should be taking? The end is near. Therefore, rack up credit card debt and leave it for the Antichrist. Does it say that? The end is near. Therefore, look in the sky for signs and, and obsess over them. The end is near, therefore have rapture practices. The end is near, therefore give up. Let the world go to pot because Jesus is going to come and rapture you anyway. And I believe that. I believe rapture, tribulation, all that good stuff. But what does Jesus want us to do? Be alert and sober-minded so that we can pray. Love each other deeply. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in his various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Let's get the altar workers up here. Thank you. Again, I have that question. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Are you ready to look up and face Jesus for that final accountability of your life? And it's the same question, but there are always two different groups of people. The great dividing line of humanity is are you in Christ or not? To the one who is not in Christ, you are not prepared whatsoever It will be a terrible day for you when he comes and cracks the clouds. It will be a dreadful day when you look up at him. If your sins have not been forgiven and if you can persist in rebelling and living your way independent of God and you don't have the time that you think you have, you are not promised a deathbed repentance. You're not promised that you can sow your wild oats and, oh, I'll just live for God when I'm ready, you know, when I can pay my phone bill or whatever, when I, whenever I get my ducks in a row. Now is all you have. Today is the day of salvation. And for the Christian, are you being obedient? Are you doing what God has given you to do? Some of you have things God has called you to. Like our brother Juan, he's, he's starting Bible college next, next year. And, and Diana was going to, to as well. But Juan is starting next year. He, he was supposed to start two, three years ago. And now he's going to do it. But he knew that whole time he was, you know, it was disobedience. God blessed him. God did things. But it was disobedience. And this is not a call for everyone to be pastors and go to Bible college. But it is a call for you to obey God. 
to do what he has given you to do. Maybe you're not loving your family as you ought to. Maybe you're not spending your money as you ought to. Maybe you're not praying as you ought to. You're not majoring on the majors, loving God and people as you ought to, worshiping and serving God as you ought to. And you don't want to be ashamed at his coming. Look, it was the servant who stopped doing what he was supposed to be doing. He got discouraged. He got lazy. Anybody here discouraged? And you're, and you're giving up the fight. You're getting lazy. God wants you to persevere. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. Thank you, Lord. You can come up to these altars, pray with one of our people up here, one of our elders and deacons. If you're in one of those two groups, like, man, you know you need to get right before you get left. You know there's sin in your life that will drag you down to the depths. And you need Jesus to save you. If you're that person, come up. If you're that Christian and you're being disobedient, willfully, lazy, neglecting, the Bible says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If you're treating your salvation lightly, if you're treating discipleship lightly, if you're taking Jesus lightly, come up and receive prayer. Oh, true.